Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Joelle. Today, we are joined by Jess Scheinflug and Kate Harrington-Rosen, co-founders of the Praxis Group. Praxis redefines group and organizational cultures so that people feel empowered to bring their full selves to the table and offers support to businesses in creating more inclusive environments. Welcome, Jess and Kate. How are you both today? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having us. We're so glad to have you here. Can we start off by having you both tell us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds? What drew you to your work? I want to start by telling a story that when I met Jess, I asked them that question for the first time. It was in a job interview. I said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And they their response was, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't hear that question without thinking of that. Um Your question was just about our backgrounds and how we got to this work. So um, Jess and I actually met because they, (laughs) after that interview, um, they were hired on, we were both working for a nonprofit in Chicago, um, and Jess was in um, getting their MSW, and I was their supervisor, and we got to work in a workforce development program supporting trans and gender nonconforming adults. Um, So we were doing a mixture of direct service in that role, so case management um, and kind of like job training with trans and gender nonconforming adults, Um, but then we also were doing doing kind of macro level interventions by going into businesses um, and working with them to create more trans affirming spaces, sort of recognizing that we could be getting our trans clients as like ready as possible for a job. But if they were going into workplaces that didn't know how to support them, um, it wasn't really going to stick. How do I say anything better than that? (laughs) What's your background? Yeah, so I was Kate's intern for a year, which was lovely before that. When I initially went into social work, I thought I wanted to be a therapist and very quickly learned kind of what Kate was talking about, that, um, you know, you can provide the the best mental health services and work with your clients in the best way, but there's still all of these systems and uh, marginalized communities uh, who are experiencing these um, systems of oppression and I wanted to address the the more macro level issues so I've been doing switched from micro social work to macro social work it's been about it's been almost 10 years since I made that switch so what does praxis mean and why did you choose that name for your business God, picking the name was so hard. We would have been around probably like eight months faster if we could agree on a name. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and actually, so a co-facilitator who we work with was with us in one of those brainstorming sessions. And actually, like, we were kind of talking through what we did and they said oh, like a praxis, right? And I was sort of like, I don't even know what that word means. Is it a real word? Um, But the idea, uh, praxis basically means like putting theory into practice. So like, how do you, I think of it as like, how do you live out your values through the work that you do? Um, And I think that, at its most basic form, that's kind of what we want to be doing with our clients, right? They come to us saying, like, it's important to create a more inclusive or affirming space. We don't know how to do that, but that's our value. And we sort of give them the tools to do that. So um, it's both our name and I think very much what we do. So and what are your different roles within the organization? Um, 
I, I, my title is um, Director of Training and Curriculum, so I'm responsible for actually creating the training programs that we implement. So um, I'll let Jess speak to what they do, but once Jess has kind of started working with a client and we're able to synthesize what it is that they want, I then put that into a program that can be implemented with them, usually through training, um, like, a, like a sort of a workshop setting, but we also kind of will create curriculum for folks that they can then take and use without us. So depending on what people want, um, sometimes we'll go in and do a one-time training, sometimes we'll do a series um, and sometimes we'll actually be creating work that they can you know implement as they're hiring new people or sort of in the future it's magical what kate does people will give us very broad like i don't really know what i want but we want to do better and they'll say like a few buzzwords and then kate will synthesize that into a proposal that just like they're like oh my god we didn't even know this is what we wanted but this is exactly what we want so I work with folks to have those initial conversations about um, what if they're experiencing any barriers, if they're having any challenges. It's usually a ca- something catalyzes them to call like an issue with a, a customer or a client. Um, so I walk them through those conversations, get a gist for what they're looking for, who they want to train, how many people, um, and then pass that on to Kate and she writes these wonderful proposals. It's seriously magic. Um, my title is director of operations and outreach. So I do all the fun stuff also like billing and financials and I manage the website and I'm a jack of all trades. All the things. Every time I check my email, Jess has like handled another thing. Um, and then we also both facilitate. So we, we work with one other facilitator right now, but primarily it's Jess or I or both of us facilitating workshops when we do that. So on your website, um, there's a term called, it's called cultural humility, and you offer a workshop on that. Can you kind of walk us through what a workshop on cultural humility would look like? So cultural humility is the idea that the when we're doing work around diversity or inclusion or whatever label we're putting on it, it's it's never done. It's always an ongoing thing. So it's kind of along the lines of cultural competency, but when... I think folks think about cultural competency, they think about checking a box or being like, you know, we did this, we had the training or, you know, we hired this person, we met this criteria. And the cultural humility part of it is realizing that we always have more to learn and there's always more to do. It's a, it's from, it's an academic thing. It's from academic text, um, which is where we got it from. And I can't think of who to credit um, it to. Tervalon and Murray Garcia are the academics who initially coined that term. Um, and really, just to add off Jess was saying, I think it's about recognizing that this is ongoing work, um, not something that you sort of arrive at and then are done. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping uh, you both can tell us a little bit about your relationship to Andersonville. So as one of our newest chamber members, what drew you to this neighborhood? I have a good story that I was thinking about. Am I going to really say this to the public? Yes, yes, you are. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up on the south side of Chicago, and then I left for college, and then I joined the Peace Corps and lived in West Africa for two years, and then I came back and was like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? Like, what is this country even? And decided, I'm going to move to Andersonville, because I found a really affordable um, garden unit, actually like right across the street, right, Um, where there's a little free library on Berwyn and Clark. And so I said, and I wasn't out to any, to my, anyone in my family as either queer or as non-binary or gender non-conforming. And I said, Hey mom, I'm moving to Andersonville. And she goes, Oh, that's girl's town. And I said, well, that's convenient. (laughs) And (laughs) 
that is how I came out to my mom. <laughs> and that was the beginning of my relationship with Andersonville. I love that so much. Um, I actually feel like Andersonville has also sort of similarly for me been a place of sort of like stepping into and catalyzing identity in a pretty powerful way. Um, I moved to Chicago about three and a half years ago with a partner and we initially lived in Logan Square and then we're kind of like... We need to like just have some space and maybe live separately for a little while. And I moved into, for the first time living alone, moved into an apartment in Andersonville that um, was just like such an incredibly like grounding and exciting experience. And so I really associate Andersonville with this moment of just like stepping into myself, stepping into my career, stepping into my friendships in these different ways. Um, yeah. Yeah, in the candy store, I can get all my blue raspberry flavored candy fixes. <laughs> it's really true. It's really true. Once I just like sat there and picked out like all the blue raspberry flavored like from the bin uh-huh it's like the <laughs> best it's the best place to take people on dates to like like let's go to the candy store like after we go to Farragut's and they're like what and then they go in there and they're like I was doubting this but this is amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. choose your own adventure that's what makes it so fun <laughs> and the little Sebastian pony <laughs> yes Well, your business centers on queer people, trans and non-binary people, people of color, women and femmes, and prioritizes intentional listening to and feedback from communities who are most impacted by homophobia, transphobia, racism, and sexism. What does intentional listening mean to you? And what does it mean to approach conversations and experiences from a place of learning? It's a great question. I love these questions. Yeah, these are really good questions. I think the kind of cornerstone for me of intentional listening is like just continuing to make myself available for that, right? And to sort of create, even if it's just in like the relationship between Jess and I, this culture where like feedback is sort of prioritized and encouraged. So instead of it being like a weird, hard thing to go out on a limb to say, you know, that didn't go well, or I'm having feelings about it, we like create spaces where it's just normalized to do that. Um, And so I think that means like asking for feedback, both from like community members, um, from any facilitators that we're working with making sure that we build that into our time together so like before we facilitate together after we facilitate together also asking questions like how do you like to receive feedback like what's the best way to talk to you when I have like a concern or um so like like email or text yeah totally or like do you want me to just be like hey you did this thing and I hated it or should I like sandwich it between some compliments right like what works for you um yeah That's, that's how I would start that answer Yeah, I would say that part of when we, any workshop we do or anything we facilitate, we begin with the definition of cultural humility and give that background information. And then we also talk about how everyone in the room is an expert. So we don't stand in front and just like talk at people. It's really participatory. And there are lots of opportunities, even in like these kind of structured workshops for folks to to have input. So I think that has really grown the people who have reached out to us to give us um, like feedback and to collaborate with us. I mean, just over the weekend we did a, we did a training and someone wanted to change one word in our definition of what um, a drag queen and a drag king was. And I had never thought about that. So the example that said that a drag, a drag queen or drag king is someone who dresses as a different gender and this person brought up a really good point that sometimes it's they're not dressing as a different gender. They're just using a different persona. So lots of trans women who their main source of income is doing drag, they're women, 
and they're also women when they're doing drag it's just like a a different more eccentric persona so we changed different gender to different persona and that was something that we had on our vocab sheet for probably a year and it was someone in a workshop who felt comfortable enough with the the dynamics of how we set up group agreements to come up to me on a break and say I have a problem with this and then we addressed it as a group and now we changed it so it's just one example of how I think we operate as a business and as a, uh, an organization. Diversity and inclusion are two terms you hear thrown around a lot. What do these terms mean to you and how do you help businesses absorb them as part of their culture? We don't use those words often. I, I would say the main time we use those words are like when we're trying to pick a category on Google for what kind of work we do and we need to pick like a, a broad umbrella category. We really, the tagline of Praxis Group is beyond inclusion. So for us, it's more about like creating affirming environments and affirming workplaces. So inclusion is sort of that first step and diversity is that first step. But for us, we don't even really talk about those as it is because we're trying to to go one step past that. Yeah, I think I those words have been overused to the point of almost lacking meaning for me, but I recognize that they hold a lot of meaning for other folks, right? And so whenever we use those, it always feels important to me to kind of qualify what they do mean to us. Um, I think that diversity and inclusion, again, feel like these sort of measurable end goals that people hold up as though like, you know, we'll do some DNI work and then we'll be done doing it and we will have achieved diversity and inclusion. And I just, I think I just like wonder what that means to folks. And so to use instead this lens of like, you know, affirmation um, feels like we're then talking about cultural shift instead of like compliance or checking a box. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about microaggressions. What are some examples of microaggressions that folks might be engaging in without even knowing it? You know, it's more of an ignorant act than an intentional one. So the first thing I want to say about that is that um, a wonderful feminist scholar that I know through work recently said to me that she hates the term microaggressions. She feels like the term microaggressions is a microaggression because it like it's this idea that those types of slights are small. Um, and I think that they can be very, very real. So I'm I don't know if I'm like saying that that's how I feel or think, but I felt like that was a really, really interesting perspective on it and has been kind of making me rethink some of these conversations. Um like you have some good examples of microaggressions. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, and it's a conversation I've had in Andersonville a lot and with the chamber about um, walking into any sort of like business or restaurant or store and right away like, hello, ma'am, welcome. And this like assuming my gender based on some arbitrary thing that, um, you know, things like welcome ladies and hello, ma'am, and how can I help you, ma'am? from this place like from this intention of respect and customer service when really it's just like the millionth time that day that i feel like someone's not seeing me so i would say that for the work we do creating trans affirming environments those sorts of like gendered language that folks don't really think twice about that are from a place of good intention are some of the most common microaggressions that we're talking about so this question is for you jess in your previous positions you worked on racial equality LGBTQIA rights, fair and affordable housing, living wage, and immigration reform. How does this work and the values you carry impact your role right now at Praxis? Wow, you really researched me. 
Um, it's in your bio. <laughs> <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what my own bio says. <laughs> I would say that working on those different issue areas along the line with going from working on more like micro therapeutic mental health things to more community organizing macro level policy, it's been, it's shaped, they've each like built off of each other to get to the point where I am now. Um, I think that for me, a lot of my roles before this were, and before I met Kate, were figuring out how I can best use the privilege that I have is most, most of my privilege comes from being a white person and using that working towards immigrant rights or fair housing or a lot of things that uh, were discrimination based on race um, and doing that in a way where I was building relationships with folks who were directly impacted and then figuring out how I can amplify their voices in spaces where they weren't being heard. Um, so I think I, I learned a lot of skills from that and it all transfers over into now where I'm advocating for, you know, my friends and community members and, and people who share the same identities, the same marginalized identities that I have. And Kate, you started your career working in direct support of sexual assault survivors in college. And in Portland, you were a case manager for adult survivors of sexual assault and youth in the sex industry, working in direct response and as an advocate at hospitals and police precincts. Can you speak to how that work has influenced the vision you have for Praxis? Yeah, I think I can do that. Um, I think that for me, being grounded and having started my career in direct service um, is something that feels relevant to my work every day. So um, sort of having that understanding and spending a really long time kind of deeply embedded in communities and, and working with communities to like figure out what what support needed to look like rather than coming in and saying like, hey, I know what you need or like here's what's going to be best for you um, and really like starting my training around that in just like basic level, like harm reduction and active listening skills. Those are all things that still feel very foundational to the work that we do. So honestly, even like approaching our business clients in that same way of not like I'm the expert and I know what you need, but tell me what you think you need, right? And tell me what has worked best for you in the past. Um, And then those active listening skills, I think around just like just mentioned this earlier, some of what we do, I think, is people come to us with what they think the problem is. And it's not about like having a better idea than them, but sort of like reading between the lines and saying, like, is this what you're saying? Right. So um, listening really hard, I think showing up really hard. um, Those are things that I was taught early in my career and through that direct service background. I think also just the only other thing I would add is like a sense of urgency too. I, I would be actually curious to hear from you just too about this, um, like working directly in communities of folks who are like ex- actively experiencing like all of these systems of oppressions that we talk about abstractly, like folks who live that and move through those in a very real way every single day. Um, allows me to not I think that I feel like our work is very urgent even even when we are like working with a big client or we're like getting paid enough that I know I'm gonna be able to pay my bill or whatever that is like it's still connected to this sense of urgency and real need on the ground. Jess as you mentioned you volunteered for the Peace Corps and served in Togo from 2010 to 2012. What was that experience like? First of all, I loved my Peace Corps experience. I loved living in Togo. I lived with a really great host family for two years and I miss them every day. And I think summarizing two years of my life and my work is really difficult to pick what to focus on. Um, But I was a girls education and empowerment extension agent, 
which essentially means what I was doing in a, in a village of less than a thousand people was talking with community members and asking them uh, why they don't send their daughters to school or would they consider sending their daughters to school and talking about different um, gender and equity issues that existed in, like I said, a very rural village. We had no running water, no electricity, um, but very like some of the most loving people that I've ever met. I Like I said, I miss them every day. So I don't, I don't ever want to talk about the work. I want to talk about my friends who I miss when I think about the Peace Corps. So what does a trans-affirming community look like? Seeing ourselves reflected in people as we walk down, like in a place like Andersonville, walking down Clark Street and seeing folks who like our business owners and who work there and who are shopping and who are walking and who are hanging out and like just having that presence and seeing myself mirrored in other people, um, I think would be a like really simplistic way to answer that question. Yeah, I love that. I think what I was going to say was very similar. Just seeing like trans and gender nonconforming and genderqueer and non-binary folks like integrated in Andersonville across the spectrum of the ways that all people are integrated in Andersonville um, and not having sort of trans or non-binary identities like tacked on as an extra right or having just like a week where we decide to think about trans people or like an initiative that we're doing that's about trans people but really having it like fully integrated into the ways that we talk and um, the goals that we have and the strategic plans that we make and etc and there are a bunch of little ways that that plays out like it's like when you meet a new person whether they're trans or cis and they say hi my name is this and it's nice to meet you these are the pronouns I use and like normalizing where every single person is doing that and just it signals really quickly that it's a transforming environment and do you feel a difference here in andersonville than when maybe you walk the streets of other neighborhoods does it feel different to you here i'll speak just for myself it feels uh gayer sometimes it feels more queer um i don't yeah so that feels different that definitely feels different I wanted to go back to the question about like what a trans-affirming community looks like too because sure. I, I really loved the suggestion that Jess gave. Um, but I also want to think about or and I also want to think about um, like what other sort of structural changes that looks like. So like all the trans people in our community having access to jobs and education and trans-affirming health care. Um, things like bathrooms where folks yeah, can like use places where people can like have a gender non-conforming restroom or a, like a non-binary gender neutral restroom. Um, folks where like people are having places where people are having conversations around like maybe we don't have a gender neutral restroom, but we don't police what people like what restroom people use. Right. Um, so I think there's like big changes and small changes that I would need to see for to feel like this was a trans-affirming place. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking of just like starting points of when someone uses the wrong name or the wrong pronoun or says something that's transphobic, having people who interrupt that right away and just like having it be a cultural norm where it's just like, we don't say that here. We don't do that. And what I see now majority of the time is it's me who has to do that. And I'm thinking about the one there's been literally one time where a waiter called our a group of people I was with ladies and someone else interrupted it and it was Kate and we were here in Andersonville and we were at a restaurant and the waiter kept saying it and Kate goes can you please not call us ladies and he said okay 
and then he never called us ladies again right and i think those really little things that get that get defined as microaggressions that can be really powerful and um, not reducing them to small things just because they're micro quote unquote micro so can you talk a little bit more about the future of Praxis Group and what upcoming projects or workshops you have? Yeah. Um, so I'm in graduate school right now, and it's been really interesting because it just feels so relevant to Praxis Group all the time. And so I was just doing a reading before I came here and nerding out because I was reading about communities of practice. Um, and the idea of communities of practice, <laughs> if I understand the reading that I did today, <laughs> is that um, it's people who are like invested in doing work that is aligned in some way, who sort of naturally come together to like learn from and support one another. Um, and that was really resonating with me because I think that the kind of long-term goal for Praxis is that we... Um, are, like help to create a community of practice around um, like creating inclusive and affirming workspaces um, and that we are sort of like a clearinghouse for folks who are doing that work in the Chicagoland area. So not that we own it, but that we sort of like work with and collaborate with many the many different folks who are doing that work from many different angles um, and can be like an hopefully like a natural entry point for people who are looking to engage with that work or kind of gain those skills that we can help them get connected with other folks. Um, I think another big dream of Praxis's um, that we are kind of continually in conversation about is um, working with queer and trans young people, in particular young people of color, to um, train them to facilitate the types of workshops that we do. Um, kind of a cornerstone of what we do is recognizing that um, queer and trans people do the labor of educating people about how to engage with us respectfully all the time. Um, and it's great that we happen to be getting paid for that now. Um, but if we're not kind of like spreading that around and spreading that profit around, um, we're sort of missing the mark in, in the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Kate said that really well. My biggest dream is as a brand new small business, finding fun funding so that we can offer fellowships to young queer and trans people of color to be training them to, to do these workshops with us. So we don't want to do it where we're expecting them to do it for less than we're getting paid to do it or for free because we're training them. They should be getting paid because it's a lot of work and it's really it's tiring and it's emotionally draining and it's really vulnerable when you're directly impacted by the things that you're you're talking about and asking folks to to change the culture and the the environments that they work in so that you feel safer more affirmed or more welcomed there so um, if anyone out there is listening to this and they want to fund something like that we're looking for sponsors and you you would be the the pioneer of it and if a business is looking for support, what are some initial steps they can take? To get in touch with us. Mm -hmm. Correct. Our website is www.praxisshy.com. It's P-R-A-X-I-S-C-H-I.com. And folks can go to the contact form on there and it gives a like overview of what they're looking for. They fill that out. I'll get that and answer them probably within the hour because I'm always on my email. I was just going to add, it's a pretty like low barrier entry. So folks can fill out the form if they want. They can also, Jess's contact info is on the website as well. And if they want to just like have a conversation or shoot an email that's like, here's what happened. I don't know. Do y'all do this? We get a lot of emails like that. And the answer is usually yes. Um, so I really encourage folks, if you heard anything today that you're like, that might be useful for where I work, um, reach out to us. We are always excited to have those conversations. And follow us on all the social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. 
and we are at Praxis Shy. So the same thing as our website. And we'll definitely include all of these links in our show notes as well. But we do like to wrap up our episode every week with some fun. So we already know Jess is a fan of Candiality <laughs> and Blue Raspberry. Um, but if either of you had to choose an Andersonville business to switch places with for a day or more than one business, what would you choose? Do you know what your answer is? There's so many. I have so many like business crushes. Um yeah, I feel like everyone probably says women and children first because they're so cool and like <laughs> that bookstore is amazing and what they do for the community is incredible. I have a little bit of a fantasy of like someday owning a bakery. So um, Lost Larson is real cute. It's so pretty in there and they're so nice and their bread is so good. So that would be a dream for a day. My fun answer is George's because ice cream and it's cute. My practical answer and business crush is early to bed because Sarah is amazing. And that is definitely the place in Andersonville where I would feel most confident that my gender is going to be celebrated and people are not going to get my pronouns wrong. Well, thank you. Those are great answers. Well, thank you, Kate and Jess, for being here. And thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. Like Jess said, for more information about Praxis Group, please visit praxisshy.com. That's P-R-A-X-I-S-C-H-I.com. Show notes on today's episode can be found at andersonville.org. Thanks so much for having us. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is engineered and edited by Andy Miles in Studio C at Transistor, a gallery, shop, performance, recording, and teaching space located at 5224 North Clark Street. Have your own podcast idea? The studio is available to rent. Please call 872-208-5877 or stop by the store for details.